WHMP. And welcome and thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Dan Torres, Friday afternoon. Yes, it is, Buzz. You have plans for this weekend? Uh, World Cup. That's all I'm going to say. Of course. Come on, Buzz. You have plans. It's World for Cup. For those who don't know, Dan Torres is Brazilian. And I, so. I'm struggling right now. Team just lost to Cameroon 1-0. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. And over in uh, stoppage time, Cameroon scored one in. So they're yes. out. Cameroon is out. Brazil continues. Brazil won the group. But Cameroon, which I said, Cameroon's got talent. They well, kept it. Yesterday, you were talking about how the historic giants in, in, in the cup um, are now being challenged by small, and you said African Sp- countries, didn't Spain you? Spain lost to South Korea 2-1, to one, and uh, that, allowed, that allowed South Korea to... Uh, I think win their group, and Spain is second in that group. Just show you, Germany is out, Uruguay is out. Like there's a bunch of teams you think are passing through. Again, this is what FIFA is investing in, kind of making soccer global. So soccer is becoming more of a global sport, and a lot of countries that traditionally would have lost eight to two in the World Cup games are doing well. In Cameroon, this is the first time an African country has beaten Brazil in the World Cup, I believe. Do you realize you just lost us about 80% of our listeners through that little rant? <laughs> You're welcome, Buzz. <laughs> no, it, World Cup is exciting, I understand. It's a World Cup. But um, uh, speaking of things that are super important to us, I'll tell you what's really important to me. What's really important to me is community legal aid and its mission. And here in the studio we have my old colleague, not old, my long Be careful, tenured uh, from Western Mass Legal Services to Community Legal Aid. Always a good colleague and friend of mine is Jen Derringer, the managing attorney of the, uh, right here in Northampton, the uh, local office that serves Franklin and Hampshire County. Hi, Jen. Hi, nice to see you, Buzz. It's great to see you. Listen, before we go any further, this weekend is a hot chocolate run. Yes. And um, before we talk about the important work that Community Legal Aid does, let's talk about the hot chocolate run. You've been involved in it one way or another for many years, right? In fact, my husband and I founded the Hot Chocolate Run. Stop it. I will not stop it. Well, I discovered hot chocolate when I was eight years old, but uh, <laughs> tell us more. That was prior to the start of the Hot Chocolate Run. Uh, I was on the board of um, Safe Passage many years ago, 18 plus years ago, and we were looking for ways to raise money, and my husband was a promoter of race events, primarily cycling races, but also had done some running races, and he said to me, let's do a run, and uh, let's do it in the winter, and Carrie Labounty, who is now president of the board of Safe Passage, said, let's serve hot chocolate and call it the Hot Chocolate Run. And it was born, and it continues. Crazy. And now it raises over $600,000 a year to support Safe Passage, which does amazing work to support uh, survivors of uh, intimate uh, partner violence. That's just great. And so uh, this weekend, can you tell us any details about it before we turn to CLA? Well, um, it's always an incredible, incredibly fun and celebratory time. Um, s- families come out, kiddos come out. There's a two-mile walk. There's a five con- 5K fun run, which is untimed, which I will be doing for the first time ever. And then there's a competitive 5K race, which my 
very fast 13-year-old will be running in. Uh, there are there will be thousands, probably 5,000 uh, participants in the event. WHMP will be there, Monty yes, and will. Bill and Jess, um, which is wonderful that they do the live broadcast there. We're very appreciative of that. Um, and it's just a, a, a wonderful community event. Um, what we hear year after year is that people make this one of their traditions. They join family and friends. They come out every year to participate to have amazing hot chocolate, um, hot in your cup, which is uh, the design is by Hillary Price, a uh, syndicated cartoonist, rhymes with orange. And so it's, it's a true community event uh, that everyone comes out to support. And it's one of my favorite days of the year. And if people want to find out more about it or if they want to donate, what do they do? Thank you for asking, hotchocolaterun.com. There you have it. it. It is. It's a great event. And this community, as always, comes through. We just finished Monty's March. Oh, my gosh. Half a million dollars. Unbelievable. Amazing. I mean, what Monty does for this community, I yeah, it makes me choked up every time I think about it. Truly, Yeah, it does. me too. I get choked up. But I, I also think it's, it's uh, Monty's a headliner, but so many people do so much to make that happen, like the Hot Chocolate Run. There's so many people that, um, that care about each other. Yes. You we can't are, ask for more than that. We are lucky to live here. We are lucky to live here, and we are lucky... For those people especially who can't really afford attorneys for their civil legal needs, operative word is need in that sentence, we have community legal aid, which you are a major part. So um, tell us, CLA, first of all, for those who don't know, and I think most people do, what is CLA? Yeah, sure. So community legal aid, as you referenced, used to be Western Mass Legal Services. We combined forces with the uh, Worcester program in 2011 to become community legal aid. And what we do is we provide civil legal services uh, to low-income folks, uh, families, individuals, and elders in all four Western counties as well as Worcester County. So I'm just looking at um, access to justice um, on, on CLA's little cover sheet here. Um, it, too, is doing fundraising and, and, and soliciting donations and the like. But I'm looking, 39% of your work is housing and homelessness. Tell us a little bit about what that work involves. Yes, consistently the um, the highest percentage of cases that come in, folks who are needing assistance are with housing and homelessness. And this has become even more pronounced um, post-pandemic. Mm -hmm. What is happening is um, that the housing market is getting tighter and tighter. Uh, landlords are deciding not to be landlords anymore. They're putting their uh, units on the market and selling them. So there is less um, housing rental stock. Uh, rental prices are going up. It is incredibly difficult for folks to find affordable housing. And of course, affordable with a capital A, that being subsidized and public housing has always been incredibly difficult to find. There's never as much of it as we need. And the wait list for those units can be years long, even though I think that the city of Northampton is, is deeply committed to growing its subsidized and public housing units uh, and stock, um, it's a challenging thing to do. Right. So you're here in Northampton, but we have, what, um, uh, 104 uh, Hilltowns that uh, have signed on to the aspiration of providing affordable housing but can't afford to do it for one reason or another. The public-private partnership that was envisioned when that uh, regulation was passed, those grants were made available, 
It just doesn't exist, does it? And, and this is a little outside of my wheelhouse, but what I understand from you know the experts at Valley CDC and Wayfinders is that it is always more expensive and more complex to build subsidized and affordable housing than anybody realizes. Yeah. Um, so there are great people out there like Valley CDC and like Wayfinders who are doing that work to create more affordable housing, but it's a slow and expensive process. I remember when I was on the board um, of what was then called Western Mass Legal Services, and I came here to Northampton on Christmas Eve and watched a family of eight getting evicted on Christmas Eve. It just struck me as what kind of landlord, and um, to his credit, the judge... Albertus Morse refused to do it. He said, it's Christmas Eve, come and see me, you know, in, in a couple of months. But I just, I just that, that was when the work that I was doing sunk in how important it is to so many people. You must see that all the time. We do. So we, um, like I said, housing is the number one need that we see. So we have a very vibrant um, housing unit. And what we do is not only can folks call in for help when they need it if they're at risk of eviction, but we also have a program where we embed at the housing court on eviction day, which in Franklin County is Friday, in Hampshire County is Monday. We go to housing court and we're available to any tenant who is at risk of eviction on that day who literally has their trial on that day. And we try to help them um, avoid being evicted. And I will say there is some good news that there are often solutions. Um, if folks owe rent, there are good state programs that can sometimes assist with the payment of that rent. If folks are having issues related to um, mental health challenges or substance use challenges, there are programs that can, that can get them the support they need to stabilize their families so that they can stay in their apartments. And our uh, our lawyers are amazing. Um, they have developed excellent working relationship with relationships with the landlord's attorneys and with the court, and they are often able to negotiate agreements uh, whereby uh, families can stay in units. And if families who were in such situations didn't have access to attorneys from community legal aid, what would their situation be like? They would be in court representing themselves, which um, I will shout out the uh, housing court in the Western, the Western division of the housing court. They are incredibly compassionate people to, to a fault. Um, they, the judges are um, very patient and compassionate and try to level the playing field as much as they can. But the reality is that the majority of landlords are represented by council and the majority of tenants are not because as vibrant as our housing unit is, there are always going to be more folks who qualify and need our services than we can possibly help. Right. And and the knowledge that you pointed out a few minutes ago that your attorneys have, people won't have unless they have an attorney that really understands. Right. And you can imagine how incredibly stressful it is to have to stand up by yourself in front of a judge uh, across from the your landlord and your landlord's attorney and try to um, and, and try to argue for your for your housing, for your family's stability. Yeah. Um, it's as I say it out loud, it, it, it sounds um, unimaginably difficult. Unimaginably difficult. I mean, it, it, as much as I I'm comfortable in a courtroom. If it was my family that I was talking about and our, our home, that we're, I'm not quite sure how I would be able to articulate that which I would like to. But I, speaking of families, 
there's something that I think a year ago we talked about this almost to the day a year ago. It was December of last year. Um, you were in here with a couple of colleagues. We were talking about this project that was happening in Franklin County, the Family Preservation Project. What's happening with that? Can you update us? Yeah, so it was um, a pilot project that we started in Hampton County uh, with the support of some money from the state. And the idea of this was that um, when families become involved with the Department of Children and Families, um, there is a a period of time where uh, the Department of Children and Families is there to give them to support. They're they're concerned enough to engage with the family, but they are there to give them support to succeed so that they don't, the DCF doesn't feel like they need to take the next step, which would be to go to court and try to get custody of children, really taking those children away from their families and putting them in foster care. Um, That's a critical period before that happens. And we all realized that um, a lot of these families, um, part of their lack of stability have to do with their legal challenges. They're at risk of eviction. Their children are struggling in school and need um, further supports in school. They need an IEP. They're having disciplinary issues in school. all sorts of legal issues that may be hindering them. So the pilot project, which was um, incredibly unique, it's one of a handful in the country and the only one in the Commonwealth, um, what it it does is it has DCF identify those cases where they feel like legal aid could be helpful. Uh, They connect those families to us. They directly refer those families to us. We try to resolve their civil legal issues We go back to DCF and say, great news, we've helped this family stabilize, their legal issues have been resolved, and the program has been incredibly successful in in really stabilizing families to the point where the Department of Children and Families no longer has concerns about the stability of the family, and they uh, step away rather than take that extraordinary step of trying to remove children from their families. We are going to take a break, but before we do, Jen Derringer, managing attorney of uh, this regional office of community legal aid. Um, I, I was a partner in a law firm. It's incredibly expensive. We had at our apex 14 people working in it. There's 150 working on behalf of all these poor people who are within 120, I mean poor as in within 125% of the federal poverty guidelines. Um, which makes you eligible for this kind of um, support by your law firm, Community Legal Aid. How does it support itself? Where does it get the funds to do what it does? Uh, great question. So the the primarily we are supported by the state. The legislature is um, incredibly supportive of legal aid, nowhere more so than in Western Mass. Our legislators here are incredibly supportive of our work. We do get some federal funding as well. And the rest is uh, grants and donations from individuals and from attorneys who are in private practice like you used to be and appreciate um, and want to support the work that we do. And how do people make such a donation? They can go right to communitylegal.org, and there is a big, giant, orange donate button. They can uh, press on it and make a donation uh, at any time that they want. I suggest, listeners, that you see if it works. (laughs) Go to Community Legal Aid and press on that donate button. Give it a whirl. Give it a whirl because it's your neighbors, it's family, it's children, it's disabled people, it's veterans. We're talking about... Our community, 
Um, and it can't be our community without providing civil legal services for those who need it. So check that button out. We're going to be back in a couple more minutes. Uh, we're going to take a break and then come back to Jen Derringer and hear a little bit more about community legal aid. Stick with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. everyone, it's Tina Marie, co-pilot of The Cambridge Connection. I'm also a certified credit counselor. For 25 years, I've been helping people have a better relationship with money while getting out of debt. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP, join me, Gordon, and our variety of amazing experts who stop by to offer great advice navigating the daily financial maze of life. If you've ever considered pet insurance for your dog or cat, then tune in on Saturday to learn how to insure that furry family member you love. It's getting very, very merry today in downtown Amherst. It's a very merry maple lighting. Gather around on the Amherst Town Common for the lighting of the tree, cider and donuts, the UMass Minuteman Marching Band, Santa arriving on a fire truck, and Santa will pose for a photo with you. A very merry maple lighting today, 3 to 7 on the Amherst Town Common. Saturday, get merry with downtown Amherst merchants. It's 20% off day, all day at participating stores and restaurants. Merry, merry, merry downtown Amherst. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back talking about one of my favorite uh, not-for-profit agencies um, here in our community, one that's indispensable to so many of our neighbors, and that is Community Legal Aid, and we're here with Attorney Jen Derringer talking about it. Um, Jen, I know that there's a project... As an attorney, I was always very frustrated by the statute. The state created this criminal offender record information. It called CORI by acronym. And first of all, what is CORI and what is Community Legal Aid doing about it? Um, thank you for reminding what, me what CORI stands for because I can never remember what the acronym is. But yes, it, basically what it is is it's your criminal record and it follows you or it can follow you throughout your life and can be a huge impediment, particularly to housing and employment, as you might imagine. 
Um, but the good news is that there are quarry regulations that allow you to either seal or expunge your record after a certain period of time. Um, that means that those folks, that housing providers and employers, no longer have access to that record. They cannot see past uh, past criminal uh, records that you have. So um, several years ago, we were lucky enough to uh, collaborate with the FERCOG, Franklin Regional Council of Governments, uh, to to um, to get a grant from the Department of Public Health to really focus on this issue in a way that we had not really intentionally focused um, in, in quite some time at Legal Aid because we really were seeing it more and increasingly as an impediment to folks getting stability in their lives. So we are working with folks to not only seal and expunge their criminal records, but also dealing with what we call the collateral consequences of having a record. And so our quarry reentry folks are now representing people at uh, hearings for um, housing denials. They, for example, they'll apply for public housing and be denied the right to move into public housing because of their criminal record. There are regulations that are actually quite good and quite detailed and uh, talk about when housing authorities can deny people for a criminal record and when they may not. Um, oftentimes, uh, criminal, uh, criminal acts are tied to folks' prior substance use. Um, and if that is something that they are no longer doing and getting treatment for, we can also often successfully make arguments uh, related to um, uh, reasonable accommodation and disability. I just want to interrupt just to, to flesh that out a little bit. It, it was 2010 when there was a study by the court itself. Um, the Supreme Judicial Court ordered it to find out what percentage of district court criminal cases involved controlled substance abuse. 86%. Wow. So, you know, a lonely kid on a Saturday night in Athol, he and his friends, they drink some beer and then they get in the car and then they do some property damage and then they, you know, they're drunk and something happens and they get a criminal record. And um, that criminal record is there in perpetuity. They apply for a job and who wants to hire somebody who created that kind of havoc so they don't get hired for a job, they don't get public housing, et cetera. That's what we're talking about, Exactly, right? and which is why it is so important for us to be helping folks seal their records so those records do not show up anymore in those contexts and folks can have access to public housing, to subsidized housing, and to, and to good employment. Um, and like I said, we have also been very successful in challenging uh, denials of, of housing for that reason. Um, really, as we were talking about earlier, um, folks having housing that is critical uh, for their to their stability. Yes, really. So it's just another project at Community Legal Aid. I, we haven't the time to talk about what you do for humanitarian-based immigration cases, or, um, economic and food security, helping veterans, reentry after incarceration, keeping kids in school, health, Medicaid, Medicare, long-term health care. There is so much that community legal aid does, and there is no feeling as good other than donating to Hot Chocolate Run this weekend as donating to CLA Community Legal Aid. And how do they do that, Jen? They can go to www.communitylegal.org. There you go. And hit that donate button. Thank you so much. It's always great to see you. You as well. It's such an important message. It runs so dear to the heart of anybody who cares about the neighborhood, the community that you live in, 
our neighbors who are less fortunate need legal representation for their civil legal needs. So community legal aid, be generous. Thank you, Jen Derringer. Thank you, Buzz. Okay. We're going to be back in a, in a minute with a really interesting um, couple of scientists who are going to join us um, to talk about, well, it, they have studied the studies, and I guess it's called uh, metadata um, and a meta-analysis, and what they've learned is there's a glimmer of hope that with conservation policies, what do we do with warming oceans? Well, marine species populations can be made to adapt. Adaptation happens in the natural world more quickly to this warming world we're all concerned about. We're going to talk with them right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. FBI agents have arrested the I-91 bandit, a man they believe was responsible for a string of bank robberies last year in Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. Law enforcement officials detained 30-year-old Taylor Dijek of Chicopee for allegedly robbing 13 banks between September 2021 and August of 2022. The suspect is believed to have been responsible for robberies in Montague, Greenfield, Brattleboro, and Athol, among several other towns. A $10,000 reward was previously offered for information that would lead to his arrest. Governor Charlie Baker made a stop in Asheville yesterday to celebrate the progress on bringing broadband to every town in Massachusetts. Over the course of the project, 40,000 telephone poles have been planted and 2,000 miles of fiber have been laid. Lieutenant Governor Polito said they have laid the infrastructure so the next administration may continue the work. And the hot chocolate run returns this weekend, this time with fresh hot chocolate for the first time since the pandemic began. Natalie Ulrich, Director of Development. The road race and fun run are both timed, and the road race has, like, prizes for people who finish the fastest. The walk is not timed this year. That's a new change. But it is certainly filled with lots of families. Dogs are welcome at the walk. Strollers, you know, we see it. We see it all. Hundreds of people participate in the hot chocolate run, all to benefit Safe Passage. The race begins and ends in downtown Northampton Sunday, with walkers starting at 9 a.m. and the official race beginning at 10.15. Bright for the rest of the afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Clouds gradually increase tonight. Evening temperatures in the low 40s and upper 30s, eventually an overnight low of 30 to 36. Rain and wind tomorrow, mild, a high of 52 to 56. Sun cloud mixed low 40s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Coming up, it's Mayor's Monday, and we'll be speaking with Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera. And if you follow the World Cup, and even if you don't, I think you'll want to hear our interview with Greg Mitchell, whose new book is titled Panic Without Borders, which significantly is about a tough topic, global sporting events, and sex traffic. Please join us Monday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. 
This bona fide minute is brought to you by New England Orthopedic Surgeons of Western Mass. Your shoulder. It's one of the largest and most complex joints in your body, consisting of the bones of the upper arm, shoulder blade, and collarbone, and the rotator cuff, a collection of muscles and tendons that not only surround the shoulder, but give it support and a wide range of motion. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Competitive hockey and basketball players can sustain shoulder injuries such as shoulder separation and dislocation and tears of ligaments and tendons from sliding into the boards, falling on the ice or court, or direct contact. But shoulder sprains, strains, and tears can also occur in us regular folks at Sunday pickup games, during dreaded winter shoveling, or even through wear and tear over time. So whether you're a professional athlete, weekend warrior, or someone in between, you can trust the team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons to give you the best bona fide care around. Visit neortho.com to schedule your appointment today. Welcome the arrival of the new year in the heart of historic Old Deerfield at the Friends of Deerfield Jubilee. On New Year's Eve, we're kicking off a year-long celebration of Deerfield's 350th anniversary. Enjoy a gourmet dinner, cash bar, raffles, and music by the O-Tones of Northampton. Tickets are $100 or $180 for two. For tickets and more information, please visit friendsofdeerfield.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Greenfield Savings Bank, AFI Furnishings, and Ralph's Blacksmith's this is the afternoon buzz with buzz eisenberg 1015 whmp and welcome back for those who have been with us and thank you for joining us those who on this friday afternoon are just joining us um this is uh, for frequent listeners you know that every thursday brian adams um educates us with his incredible guests about um, what's happening to our climate, um, climate change and warming waters and all the havoc that's being wreaked uh, sometimes in the United Nations report, which told us accelerated the window that we have before dire things start to happen. Well, there is a glimmer of hope that, um, that I learned of, and I invited the authors of a couple of, of a study, a study of many studies, and we'll hear about that in a minute, but the glimmer of hope says, look, we know about evolution and adaptation. Um, maybe there's something we can do to use adaptation to accelerate the way that species adapt to warming conditions, particularly marine creatures, um, to promote their survival. And I think I got that right. With me in the studio is Dr. Brian Chang, Assistant Professor of Marine Ecology at UMass, and Dr. Matthew Sasaki, as a marine biologist and evolutionary ecologist um, at the University of Connecticut. So let me start with you, Brian. Did I say that right? <laughs> uh, thanks, Buzz, for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, I think uh, what we would say is that we want to leverage or understand how species are uh, potentially responding to climate change. And so it's not so much that we want to um, necessarily alter their evolutionary trajectory. It's more so that we want to give them a fighting chance at adapting to future conditions. And we can do that through conservation and restoration actions. And so a lot of the concern has been over this fact that climate change is this potential threat, uh, business as usual scenario. That's a given in your study, right? Climate change is yeah. real, it's a threat. 
Climate change is real. It's a threat. Waters it, are warming. Waters are warming. And you're focusing on marine creatures, not terrestrial creatures. So actually, we're focusing on both. Oh. So oftentimes, there are divisions in science where marine biologists will study marine uh, organisms and terrestrial scientists will study uh, organisms on land. Um, but here, we're really trying to compare uh, organisms living both in the ocean and on land. And it's a, it was a collaborative effort with, uh, between marine scientists as well as um, terrestrial scientists. So really trying to understand what's the big picture here with respect to vulnerability to climate change. So Matt Sasaki, you, um, uh, what I've learned is that the, what's called the senior author is Brian, and what you're, you're the lead author, it sounds like you did a lot of the roll up your sleeves work. It looks like this is a study of many, many studies. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, what we did is uh, we used a technique called meta-analysis, which is essentially reanalyzing data that people have already published um, in, in other studies. Uh, and Brian mentioned that we worked as part of a team, and the, the team effort is really what made this possible because having to go into all of these other publications and pull out sort of individual data points, uh, we, we did a lot of that by hand, and that's where... It's one of the many places where our co-authors were invaluable so that Brian and I didn't have to do all of that on our own. So uh, can you summarize, there's, I think, 61 species that you identified to focus on. Why those 61 and what did you learn? Yeah, um, one of the, the sort of main questions, whenever you start sort of thinking about running an experiment is what animal are you going to use, what model system are you going to use? Luckily for us, we didn't have to make that decision uh, because we pulled all of the species that we could find from the literature, uh, from that people had already worked with. And so in one way that takes some pressure off of us to not have to make that decision. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, that did stand out is sort of you're, you're limited by that. We're not able to run our own experiments for the study. Um, and so we're limited by what other people have focused on. Um, and uh, that might influence sort of what we saw. Uh, so for example, on, on land, there's lots of plants and lizards and flies. In the ocean, there's some snails and some mussels, uh, some really small crustaceans. Um, but you'll start to notice that there are places, there are sort of gaps. Um, that are important to keep in mind. Um, and one of the uh, reasons we use this meta-analysis, this formal suite of tools, um, is because that tool set helps us to identify and work with or work around uh, differences in the species that show up in different places. I think I understand. Um, Brian Chang, you say we need to understand how populations have adapted. What is a population? So if we think about species, uh, a species, let's say. So uh, for example, we like to use the uh, Atlantic killifish as, as one model for this. Um, the Atlantic killifish ranges from Florida all the way up to Canada. But within that entire species, there will be many uh, smaller groups of killifish that live together and that might interact with each other, and they might mate together. So That's called a population. That we, we would call that a population. And so most studies have focused really at the species level. 
Um, and that work suggests that marine species might be at risk from climate change. And that's because the ocean is really homogenous, we would say. It's all, um, there's not a lot of what we would say are temperature refuges. So if you think about on land in a forest, um, there are many places for organisms that for, for them to hide, like under a rock or in a crevice or in the shade of a, a canopy or of a tree. But in the ocean, those refuges are unavailable to them. So we wanted to really take a look at how the populations differ and how they might have different abilities to adapt to warmer conditions. Mm. And so that's where this meta-analysis comes in, right? So we, it would take us decades to do all this work that all these other uh, scientists have published. And so we were able to bring it in an analysis and look at how the populations differ in terms of their ability to tolerate heat. So in terms of this meta-analysis of these uh, 90, I guess, previously published studies, so you mentioned earlier, Brian, um, something about conservation and management. What does this teach us, your work, teach us about conservation and management? So it, the, one of the key findings was that the marine species, the populations are quite different, and that's, that's unexpected. In the ocean, most organisms have many young that they release into the currents. Um, they don't have parental care like, like people do, <laughs> like mammals, right? And so the prevailing wisdom was that all the populations are very similar to each other because their young go up into the water and they mix around. Um, so what this tells us is actually the populations are quite different. And if we can potentially keep the populations connected by protecting their habitat, by making sure their abundances are high, these populations that have the ability to tolerate heat might be able to have offspring that can then travel to the next population and confer some of those benefits to the next population so that those advantages in, in terms of tolerating heat might be passed on to other populations so that the species entirely will, will do well. So that was one of the main findings was keep them connected in the ocean. But on land, it might be a different story. The species on land are not so different in terms of their populations. And so um, one of the key things you might do in, from a conservation or restoration perspective is to maintain the thermal, what we call refugia. So as it turns out, old growth, old growth forests are quite good at uh, buffering against heat waves. And so if you can maintain... At buffering against heat waves. Wait, right. So imagine a heat wave rolls through a forest, right? Would you rather be in the forest in the shade? Oh, or would you rather be on a rock I see. Uh, out in the full sun? Got it. Right? So if you can maintain the habitat that's um, complex and, and can protect organisms against high temperatures, we think that's a good thing. So it's a different strategy that you might use on land versus the ocean. So Matt, would that happen on its own without our assistance? That is, would the forces that result in adaptation, evolutionary forces, um, mean that those critters that are in more protected locations, those populations would survive anyway and adapt? Why do we need our assistance to help it happen? Right. I think that that's a really important point. Uh, what our study looked at is the existing pattern in how populations have evolved. Um, and we're taking those insights and sort of projecting them forward to say, if this is how evolution is working, 
how might that influence um, vulnerability to, to climate change? And so the sort of direct human action is maybe it, it is not to say we're going to you know, get our hands in there and mess with the evolutionary process, but to leave natural systems as natural systems, let them function the way that they function, uh, maintain uh, and restore uh, these sort of um, natural habitats so that the strategies that have already worked uh, for populations in their natural habitats can continue to work in, into the future. I think I'm getting this. I think even I can get this. Uh, law and government guy could get this. We're, uh, we're, we're going to take a break. Uh, I've got these two scientists. That I, I should ask you, Herschel Walker says that werewolves can beat up. No, I'm not going to go there. We're going to take a break instead and come back. We are talking now with Brian Cheng and Matthew Sasaki, and uh, we're getting a hopeful message about what happens as uh, climate continues to change. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. I see somebody dressed up as uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer running. We have uh, someone as a Christmas tree. It yes. looks like they're wearing pine needles. Yes. I don't know if that makes it more or less fun to run in. This Sunday, the hot chocolate run for Safe Passage is back. And WHMP will be there live, broadcasting from the run in downtown Northampton. Safe Passage is the Hampshire County organization addressing domestic violence. you still got time to sign up to run, walk, or volunteer. Then share your fundraising page with family and friends to create year-round support for survivors of domestic violence violence. Join us live in person in downtown Northampton this Sunday, or join us right here on WHMP for the live broadcast of the Hot Chocolate Run for Safe Passage. When you look at this event, does it say something to you about Northampton as a community? It's a remarkable testament to what people can do when they're all working on the same issue. WHMP's support of the Hot Chocolate Run is made possible by Whalen Insurance Northampton. Local people, local service, local insurance. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for 
for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back. Uh, we are uh, continuing our conversation with Brian Cheng, Assistant Professor of Marine Ecology at UMass Amherst, and Dr. Matthew Sasaki, a marine biologist and evolutionary ecologist. And they did this meta-analysis of many other studies that we've been talking about. And what they learned is that now in the face of climate change, instead of looking at just species and what the, their tolerance is to the changes in our climate, if we look at populations within species, we find that they are, some are more tolerant, I think is the right word, some are more able to adapt, that uh, Darwin would be smiling right now um, because the theory of adaptation uh, in fact is true and that there might be time for many species populations of species to adapt. Is that, did I get that right, Brian? Yeah. So uh, earlier we were talking about Atlantic killifish, which live, just as an example, they live from Florida to Canada. So as it turns out, populations in the southern portion of the range can have a, a tolerance of high temperatures that's almost two degrees C greater than the ones in the north. So it would suggest that the, some populations might be better able to withstand warmer temperatures than others. Now, in biology, one of the things that I love to teach my students and remind them is there is no free lunch. So that means that there can be the potential to evolve. Unless you're a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, there, there, there may not be a free lunch. So you populations could evolve greater tolerance to these warmer conditions, but they might do so at a cost. So it's not uh, completely... Um, great story in that, you know, in many ways it is good, right? Some populations might be better off than others, but they might do so at cost. So we don't know what those costs necessarily are, but it's a glimmer of hope that it might be um, not as bad as previously thought. Uh, Matt Sasaki, I'm not sure whether this is a good question or not. I'm a little out of my wheelhouse right now, but uh, I know in the Cape, all of a sudden we're inundated with great whites and they talk about the warming waters causing a problem and this it's attracted seals and these populations of seals are attracting um, great whites. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what, because great whites usually are, they're all over the place, right? And so we have, uh, that species has certain populations that live in certain places. How does that dovetail with what we're talking about right now or does it at all? This is actually a really, really interesting question that I think warrants sort of further study. 
um, we talked earlier about how meta-analysis uh, is restricted, our meta-analysis is restricted to the species that people have already studied. Um, and by chance, uh, or maybe because it's just easier to work with these species, everything that we studied has sort of very distinct populations where animals from one place are kind of sticking around that place. For animals like great whites or tuna or uh, like swordfish that are swimming huge distances during their lifespan, that spreads out sort of the definition of a population um, to a point that it, it becomes harder to extrapolate our results from this study to something like a great white mm. or a whale. Or, um, But one of the things that we do what we are that we are interested in is can we figure out sort of the drivers behind these evolutionary patterns? Um, what uh, sort of feature in the environment might be pushing populations to evolve one way versus the other? Um, and one of the reasons why the theory of evolution is so powerful and so sort of I think interesting and exciting is that it has these rules that can be used to extrapolate. So if we could figure out sort of the uh, secret ingredient in the environment that gets populations to evolve one way, and we were able to study great whites uh, and the habitats that they inhabit throughout their lifetime in sufficient detail, we might be able to predict um, what their thermal limits might be or how they might respond climate change. It sounds critical that we figure this stuff out. I, I see Brian Chang that the National Science Foundation helped fund this study by your team and it was a large team. It wasn't just the two of you, but I, I know that you're principal here. Um, is the work that you did going to um, convince some possible funding sources, grant sources, that more work has to be done in looking at populations as opposed to just species uh, in the context of climate change? Well, I think that's the hope. You know, um, I think early on in climate change science, there was a focus on species, just writ large, right? And uh, possibly, I think there was the idea that evolution was slower, um, and that's one of the great biological discoveries of the last century: is that evolution can actually ha proceed much faster than we previously thought. So, what we're suggesting here is we really need to focus on the right. Uh, level of organization for for animals and plants, and that's populations in addition to species. Species, of course, are important, but what we're saying here is the right level might be the level of populations. Extinction is important. Extinction is permanent and it's forever, but before you have extinction, you have the loss of uh, individuals and populations. So that is an appropriate place for us to start. Do Do you see? Uh, a focus on population happening among your peers? Um, or is this something that you're just sort of, that you and Matthew Sasaki and your team have just sort of flagged for others to pick up on? I think there's uh, been wide, um, a, a, ch a cease change, if you will, in the last uh, decade or so, recognizing that these evolution evolutionary processes can be much faster than thought. So there is a recognition in the field. We just uh, um, haven't been able to distill exactly what's been going on. And so that's part of the significance of the study. Now, on the one hand, if you think about it, we're doing a meta-analysis. So that means there had to have been studies before us 
that set the stage for this work. But You're we doing need, an analysis of studies that were done before. That's right. So there were to, by definition, there was some recognition that this, these kinds of questions are important because there were 60 species, 90 studies, et cetera, that looked at these sorts of questions. But the, the power here is that we're able to combine them all and to look at the bigger picture. So earlier you were asking about why look at all these species. Well, it's because we can start to, to take a step back and look at the big picture. And, that, and that's what makes it powerful. We only have a, a couple minutes left, but I have to show this. I'm showing Brian, Matthew, and listeners a picture right outside my window of a ma mother and three cubs, these bears. We always take our bird feeders in at night, um, uh, probably up until the beginning of November or so. Um, and then during November, we can leave it out and help the birds that are acclimating to winter or that are migrating. Well, guess what? Two days ago, we have bear, a, a mama, and three cubs. I'm showing in this picture right, right here. Um, we never, they should be hibernating by now, and they're not. Is, how does this dovetail with what your work is, Matthew? Right. Does it? I think that uh, it's, it's one piece of the puzzle. Right? So our, our study looks at one very specific uh, trait, right, which is a, a temperature that organisms can, can withstand. Um, but this all fits into sort of a population's role in their natural habitat when they're active throughout the year or throughout the day, what they're eating, who's eating them. Um, and so I think that this, uh, our call to focus on populations within species applies beyond just thermal limits and to other things, right? Why is it this population of bears already hibernating? Um, is that something you're seeing across the entire range of the species or is it specific to one population um, more so than another. And because we're out of time, we're going to have to leave it there. But that is the question. And the answer is, we need more study. And thanks to people like you, Brian Chang, and you, Matthew Sasaki, uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, find solutions to the ever-emerging climate crisis, and we can learn more about it. Meanwhile, everybody else, have a great week. Don't forget, our climate needs your input to your legislators to do something about it. And uh, have a great weekend. Thank Brian, you. Matthew, thank you. Thank you, Buzz. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz what Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Tell me what did the deep sea say? Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.